This is the WGNS Action Line, talking with Rutherford County newsmakers about what matters most to you. Now, your host, Scott Walker. From the Murfreesboro City Hall, we have Darren Gore and Sam Huddleston, both assistant city managers for Murfreesboro. So is the City Hall going to be handing out candy today? Yes, uh, Scott, our staff's ready to go with that, and they look forward to uh, greeting the, uh, the families uh, and the children that will be in there this afternoon. It seems like that event gets bigger every single year. <laughs> Speaking of getting bigger, Murfreesboro is growing like crazy, and that's been going on for years now. But speaking of growth, I know there has always been a concern with infrastructure and roads and uh, making sure that everything is properly laid out ahead of time before that growth in certain areas occurs. What is the biggest growth area right now in Murfreesboro? So... Um uh, good to be with you this morning, uh, Scott. It, it took uh, two of us to replace our city manager, Craig Tindall, today. <laughs> so I told Craig to listen in, make sure we didn't make any boo-boos or mistakes, and, and hopefully he'll he'll let us know if we, we get off on the wrong, wrong foot. Um, you know, we're still seeing a lot of growth in the area west of uh, I-24, um, and uh, in Maybe I'll ask Darren to address this as well. But the the real driver in that was the extension of sewer into the Highway 96 area uh, that started with uh, the Blackman School Complex in the late 90s and then a follow-up extension into the State Route 99 area um, with a uh, uh, sewer system that that runs parallel to uh, State Route 99 New Salem Highway. Yeah. Yeah, so overall creek... um the interceptor sanitary sewer interceptor was really initiated in the late 90s to serve uh, the blackman area uh, specifically the blackman high school so we've got about 25 years of uh, experience where that has been the highest growth uh, area by far matter of fact we just expanded the uh, overall creek pump station uh, in effect doubling its capacity uh, we 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 saw, I guess, about three years ago when we started doing a uh, sewer allocation report uh, that that capacity was dwindling in the original pump station that was built and that it really had to jump up as a priority one uh, item to get that expanded so that we could continue to allow that growth. So uh, it's just recently been expanded. It should be good to go uh, for the next, hopefully, until I retire <laughs> and, uh, and, beyond. The, and beyond and beyond and then uh, our, our really our next biggest challenge is we're, we've got a lot of collection capacity now but we got to get that to our plant and our plant uh, uh, it's the water resource recovery facility formerly known as the wastewater plant we got to get that expanded by, by 2030. Now, will there be sewer systems or will it be septic tank out 96 of that brand new Dell Webb community that is uh, getting underway with, I think, 1,100 homes or so? Yes, so that's being developed under the um, uh, Rutherford County uh, Planning and Zoning Authority. Uh, it is being developed on a uh, step system, so that would be a community, basically a community septic system. Uh, where each home has a septic tank, and then the uh, the discharge or effluent from that is is transported to a common disposal field. Um, they originally had approached the city, uh, the developers, uh, with with an interest of being annexed into the city, and and we were really struggling with um, 
access to sewer. It was going to take a pretty mm-hmm. significant uh, project there. And then also um, that being about a mile and a half from our current city limits, just being able to manage uh, services. And the proposal was for about 1,900 homes um, with city sewer. Uh, so that would create a pretty significant demand on our uh, rolling services as well as our uh, roads, drainage, uh, water, and sewer. And when it comes to doing things like annexing different portions into the city limits, it seems like we haven't seen a whole lot of large annexations in recent years. Yes, and that that was uh, intentional, I think, on the uh, uh, city's part, uh, you know, as we looked at, at some of our annexation uh, practices from from 20 to 30 years ago as we also looked at how the annexation laws and uh, requirements that the state of Tennessee have changed uh, it, it really allowed us to to refocus our efforts um, our planning department worked through a, a process with the uh, uh, with the community and then with our planning commission and mayor and council to establish what we called a, uh, a, a services boundary. And that's really the area that we were looking to be able to serve with city services in the next, say, 10 to 15 years. Uh, it is much smaller than our urban growth boundary that was developed in the in the late 90s as, uh, as a result of some state actions. Um, and so that service infill line gives us a short-term planning boundary, and, and we really work with uh, our infrastructure providers uh, like uh, Water and Sewer and with Darren and his team, uh, CUD uh, as the water provider. We look at our roads. We look at police, fire, uh, solid waste, uh, parks and rec, and just try to understand those demands on services uh, and as most growing communities would attest um, providing uh, those services and being able to to ramp up your efforts there are really the big cost items what was the most recent area to actually be annexed into the city well, I saw you. I heard you stump Amy Byers this morning. So <laughs> you got her on the first question. We made it through a couple. Um, you know, the Rockvale annexation that that we we did there, just beyond the Rockvale School, is is the one that comes to mind as being uh, one of the more recent ones, especially that involved a real close look at our ability to serve that community. And with that Rockville annexation, I, I mean, we've already seen a lot of new homes go up out there. Well, especially after Rockville High opened. But we've seen a lot of new, I guess, construction projects going on in that direction. And, and that's true. Um, uh, you know, the uh, the cry we hear occasionally from the public is um, the infrastructure should be in place before the growth comes but in fact both of those need to be advancing at the same time we we don't have the financial resources to run sewer systems all over town we don't have the financial resources to upgrade all our roads overnight into a 20-year road system Uh, and so we advance those into the areas uh, like you talked about that that are exhibiting high growth potential and we're seeing those things and then each year we review our um, our infrastructure plans uh, at at the city and and also with the water and sewer department to uh, prioritize projects to to hit those hot spots and and be able to fund the the projects with the most need what one kind of interesting historical um element again that we ran rockville sewer it was a, it was about two or three miles of sewer to to service uh the middle school and the high school out there uh, back in the mid 2000s 
we really expected that corridor, that Rockville down uh, Salem Highway to really take off as soon as we laid that sewer. But it's it's been interesting that it, that sewer has really, other than the two the, the two schools that connected to it back in the mid-2000s, we really uh, did not see anything over the last 15 years or so as far as connections. And now all of a sudden it seems to be the, um, it's, it's kind of uh, something's triggered uh, that, that new development out there. Now, I, I do notice from time to time, whenever an area is annexed into the city, if there's any homes in that particular area, you'll often see, you know, three or four of them go up for sale. Is that because those residents now have to pay both city and county taxes? Does that instantly happen when an annexation occurs? Well, uh, Scott, I would like to maybe address the um, the state law. Uh, the city can only annex now by request uh, of the property owner. And so we are not... Um, conducting annexations without the consent of the property owners. Um, and so uh, there are maybe a few homes um, on, on the larger tracks uh, that, that might be um, involved in that annexation. And there is a, a time frame um, in which they, they do pay uh, for city services by picking up that extra tax bill. Uh, we do, however, extend services in most cases day one. Um, uh, so the first day those properties are annexed in the city, we're, we're ready and able to provide uh, our city services. There are, uh, have been occasions, although they've been very limited, where we have implemented that, um, those services over time. And I, I'll give you an example. Um, there were some areas that had adequate um, uh, water but did not have fire hydrants. And so we worked with um, our water providers to upgrade the fire hydrants. And that took us a, a few months to do that, to be able to provide um, the desired level of fire protection in those communities. Um, but but if, it, if it does involve uh, homes that are existing, uh, for example, we're putting uh, trash cans, we're distributing trash cans to those homes uh, before the first day of annexation so that they would be eligible for that service day one. Uh, Lemon brush pickup, for example, we're added those to the routes and so we're extending those services. Now, as to the uh, reason that a, that a property owner may sell following annexation, really it might be twofold. One might be the opportunity uh, that's presented to the property owner. And then a second reason is is they may may not be interested in, in going through the construction and maybe having the development um, uh, that close to them. And so they made a, a decision for, for, for perhaps lifestyle um, uh, or, uh, you know, the impacts on the neighborhood uh, to do something different. And I guess if you own a, a fairly sizable piece of property that's in the county but yet annexed into the city and you're part of that annex, I mean, I could see where that would increase your property taxes quite a bit. So if, for example, if you, uh, you know, budget for everything and, and it has been tough on a lot of people over the past few years, I could see where, you know, a, a couple of thousand dollars would even possibly change somebody's mind about living where they live. So the, uh, yeah, the, the county tax rate um, is about two times the city tax rate. Uh, and so we generally say on a residential home that you pay $2 in county taxes uh, and, and $1 in city taxes. So if you're $1,500 on a county bill, you're, you're you know, about 750, uh, 700 or so on, on yeah. the city, I guess. Okay. 
And again, I guess if the property was fairly large, I could see where that'd be quite expensive fairly quick. And, and having worked with property owners who were interested in perhaps uh, annexation and getting city services, uh, understanding the tax consequences for some of those was, was real important into the timing of of the transactions that were involved, the annexations and and or uh, land sales, if they were you know if they were working with a developer, and moving closer to town in the downtown Murfreesboro area, I know there has been a lot of talk about a lot of different developments coming, and one of the uh, ideas that's been tossed around, which I think is being studied right now, is having a, a minor league baseball team in the downtown Murfreesboro area. Where does all of that stand now? So following the uh, presentation at the council workshop, um, uh, Craig Tindall, uh, our city manager, requested uh, some information on the economics of the, of the proposal. And uh, as I understand, we're waiting on information back from the uh, 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 team uh, and the, 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 the team that would represent the ownership of the ball club. Um, we, we heard from two individuals uh, during that workshop. One of them was representing an owner's group that would, would actually be the owner of the team. And then we also heard from the, um, from the league uh, uh, spokesperson, the president of that, uh, of that uh, American Association of uh, Baseball League. Hey, and we've gotten some emails here at the station about all of that who have told folks have said, you know, they feel like that baseball league kind of misrepresented who they were and how big they were because I think there was some concern by some residents who at first thought the idea was great, then they later found out, well, this league may not be really big enough to bring in that many people. It may not create that kind of interest that the city was possibly led to believe. So, uh, you know, we're, we're in a, a, a due diligence period um, looking the city doing our part, we would look at the opportunity that's presented by having a uh, that uh, ball club move here. But at the same time, the ownership team and the league would also be reviewing Murfreesboro to make sure it's an appropriate community for the baseball league. And so there's a lot of interest in moving that forward. Uh, both parties are going to do their, their best to understand um, the transaction before we move forward. Um, the the information we've received from the team, um, you know, they they have compared themselves to double uh, A uh, affiliated double A baseball, and and so when we look at that, uh, having a stadium that would seat perhaps um, forty five hundred to five thousand um, fans. And having a regular attendance uh, of, of obviously you're probably not going to have sellouts for 50 games a year, but having regular attendance in the 3,000, 3,500 range would be maybe expected out of that. Um, and and so we're not filling up, uh, you know, Nayland Stadium. We're not uh, we're not filling up uh, uh, Nissan Stadium here at every game. We're really this would be a local entertainment um, and. Uh, outlet for for observing professional sports here in the Murfreesboro community. And, and of course, with really all minor league baseball teams, we have seen over the years that there are lots of trades that happen. There's lot, lots of, of closing of teams or, or shutting down of teams that happen. So I could see where it could be kind of a, a volatile situation. You don't really know what to expect. So I don't. How does the city kind of account for that when deciding if this group or if another group 
should locate here and, and what the city can or can offer? Yeah, so so first thing we need to understand is what's being asked of the city. Uh, and, and then understanding what's being asked of the city, we can evaluate the risk um, and the, the what-if scenarios and then uh, putting together some type of agreement that would uh, talk about what our relationship is when things go correct. If everything works like we've anticipated it and everything works like the um, uh, the, the team and the league suggest it would. Uh, and then we also have to have that counter side to that and, and talk about what happens if things go wrong. And, and the team would expect a certain level of support and a certain level of actions by the city. We have to hold up our end of the bargain um, and, the, uh, and, and we would expect the same from the league and from the team and the ownership uh, that they would hold up their end of the bargain. And part of that agreement would address what happens uh, in the event that things don't go as we've expected or, or as we've planned. Now, the, the best uh, measure uh, for uh, this league, in my mind, is looking at, at, at their existing teams, their existing leagues, their existing infrastructure, and measuring what's happening in those other communities. And I think they had about 12 teams um, uh, really through a swath uh, of the of the Midwest looking to move into the uh, south and southeast with uh, with some expansion uh, and so we we would judge them uh, partly based on how the other teams have performed how the other cities have uh, operated with that and what kind of success they've exhibited hey I know one of their more popular teams is in Texas I don't recall what city in Texas but it seems like there's a lot of cities in Texas that are similar in progress to Murfreesboro. So I, I don't know if that's an area that uh, the city has looked at or not to kind of get some ideas on that baseball team. Yeah, we haven't looked at detail at the individual cities um, uh, where the leagues are, but we have we have researched them a little bit. And, and it is a common practice uh, in, in what we do in city planning and, and growth and development and infrastructure uh, is we look at uh, communities that are similarly situated um, and, and maybe a little little they're, they're in in front of us perhaps as far as where they're at and so we can look at their lessons learned and, and their uh, best practices and then then try to implement those here and i would expect no different um, with the the baseball league that we would understand uh, what those relationships look like what made it successful in one community perhaps where were the struggles in another community and then try to take those lessons learned and apply them here in Murfreesboro. And again, with us this morning, we have Sam Huddleston and Darren Gore, Assistant City Managers for the City of Murfreesboro. Now, uh, that baseball team that we just talked about, that's been proposed for the Cannonsburg area. So moving closer to you know the main square, there has been a project that really got underway several years ago, that being one college or one East College, which was going to be, I believe, uh, apartments, condos, retail office space, and uh, even a hotel was in the plans. And now little has been done with that whole development. What, where does that stand today, and, and how is the city working with that development group? So we're relying on the, the contract we have with them uh, for their development plan. And so there's some there's some mechanisms in there that uh, we have, some legal mechanisms we have to, if I could say it this way, kind of force some action on that. And we're, we're using those to, to try to get the development, the developer to move, uh, make some moves on that property. Um, and in that move could be um, moving forward with a development plan. Um, 
but it also could be uh, maybe regrouping and coming up with a plan B. And so uh, we we are due some information from the development team on uh, where they're at and, and what their proposal is to move forward. Uh, we'd look to maybe see that clarified in the next, uh, next few weeks. You know, it, it's got to be tough when you're working in city planning or when you're on the council trying to decide to whether you should okay this project or vote it down because you have no way of knowing if this company will run out of funds if this company will have to file bankruptcy if this company will run into some type of problem and not be able to really fulfill what they promised the city that's got to be hard at times. Well, I think it's the same analysis that we talked about with the ballpark. You have an agreement in place that talks about how each party behaves if things go proper and things go well and as we plan them. But you also have that um, anti-side that say, says what happens if things don't progress like they should. And our job then would be to protect the resources and the position of the city, making sure that the, that the, the damage and the uh, um, impact on the city would be uh, limited in nature uh, and that we have some some contract mechanisms in place to, to do that. And I guess if a company goes belly up, that that's you, that's an even tougher boat to be in. That's correct. We are working with still though a solvent company. They haven't uh, they have the um, um, uh, they're financially stable. Uh, otherwise, what what they're saying to us is that today the economics of the project as designed do not work. Um, and I think it would be um, a misstep on their part as well as a misstep on the city's part to force that plan to go to, to, to go forward if it's not economically viable. Yeah. Uh, we need, none of us, uh, the, the developer, nor the city, nor our citizens would want a project that starts and fails. And so uh, before they move forward, we need a level of comfort, as do they, that their project will be, uh, uh, will be successful. Another area that has been talked about for development is the old Bank of America building, kind of behind Shackless Photography, really almost at the corner of South Church and East Main Street. Is that something that has been formally presented yet to planning or, or anybody within the city? To date, we've only had um, uh, discussions with the owner of that property and have reviewed some ideas that, that they have uh, for that property. They have about a half a block there, the old Bank of America building, and then they purchased the corner of um, uh, North Church and... Um, in Main Street, actually at South Church in East Main Street, there by Shacklett's Photography. So they do have a frontage on uh, the city square uh, there as well. And of course, I believe at one point may still be there, there was a, a First Bank ATM machine right there on that corner lot, which is now kind of like a little a garden area. There, there's greenery, and, and like I said, there may still be an ATM machine there. I'm not sure. You know, I walk by that several times per week. <laughs> I never know. <laughs> Now, uh, moving closer to the radio station, in fact, this whole block where the radio station sits and uh, then behind us, the old fire administration building and the Murfreesboro Water Department. And then to the left of us, there's uh, Murfreesboro Police locker rooms. And then a little bit further down, you've got a, a car dealer on the corner. That uh, this whole area right here, this whole block, it's been proposed for, again, a multi-use, multi-purpose type structure with condos with retail space office space restaurants and even a hotel where does this project stand today 
so uh, the the Broad Street development, and we've uh, also called it the Keystone Project, uh, that that would sit between uh, South Church Street and um, West Vine Street along Broad, involve about seven acres. Um, they uh, are moving forward with a development plan. Uh, they have made an, a formal submittal to our city planning department. Um, that would that would be a plan development zoning and by that it's a very specific plan that'll talk about uh, um, how many and how much and how big and and what types of materials and where it's going to be located but it's a very specific development plan um, that's that's uh, in the planning process uh, it has to spend some time with our planning department and then to the planning commission for consideration and then from there we'll go to the city council uh, for a, a rezoning uh, as well and, and uh, have a couple of meetings there with them. Uh, if that plan and project moves forward uh, in the annexation and zoning, I'm sorry, the zoning process, we would antic anticipate by, say, March of next year that their zoning entitlement would be in place. Now, with this project, the developers are actually developers who've developed quite a few properties, I believe, in the Franklin, Tennessee area. And city folks have been able to actually see some of their developments that they have already completed that are now open and, and seem to be working well. So th I think that's a positive whenever it comes to a new development, when you're able to actually see the things they have developed and see that they are working. So they are an experienced developer in the Middle Tennessee and in other markets as well and, and have actually completed a couple projects here. So we're familiar with the developer. Um, we have not uh, in, in the past uh, you know, entered into any kind of formal agreement with them. They they followed the uh, development process um, as a private developer, uh, and then we've also be, been able to see some of their projects in some other communities, as well as some other projects similar in nature to to what we're looking for at say One East College or the Keystone Project, which would be an urban development, mixed use, uh, multi-story. I would call it mid-rise, three to four to five stories. Uh, and, and mixed use and generally um, it, it would involve a, a significant amount of residential um, as well as uh, commercial retail office and uh, in a couple of cases the hospitality part of it where uh, hotels have looked at the Murfreesboro uh, market and, and have shown an interest in the downtown. When it comes to new developments in places like the downtown Murfreesboro area or places like the Medical Center Parkway Gateway Zone, there are stringent, I guess, rules in place or, uh, I don't know, rules to follow as far as how a building can look and can't look, which seems to be popular in a lot of cities now because it, of course, helps protect property values of those properties around that development, but also it keeps a certain look all throughout that area that kind of just blends together and, and looks neat as opposed to looking kind of messy. Uh, downtown Murfreesboro, what types of regulations are we looking at, for example, for this project and this whole development right here at South Church and, and Broad? Uh, Scott, so that, that whole discussion really starts with vision. Um, you know, working with our uh, community, uh, uh, the public, the residents, 
as well as our elected and appointed bodies like the Planning Commission, the Mayor and Council, and then stakeholder groups uh, in the downtown area, for example, Main Street, Murfreesboro, uh, the downtown dwellers, the downtown business owners. We try to create a vision for where we think this uh, area is and where it could be in the next, uh, say, 20 years. That was done through a planning process and resulted in the uh, bottoms uh, redevelopment plan as well as the North Highlands redevelopment plan and in those uh, we created a vision document uh, that that uh, represents that community vision the consensus vision for how we think those areas uh, should look in the next 10 to 15 to 20 years and then we put in a body of regulations um, uh, at the staff level we recommend those and put those in through the planning commission and, and city council to execute that plan and then as we see project opportunities whether those involve the city as a partner as as in the broad street project or private development uh, that's moving forward on its own we're going to apply that body of regulations to their projects to help shape the the final product um, and so it really starts with that visioning pro process uh, which is exactly what happened on medical center parkway in the 2003-2004 time frame, we put together that gateway master plan that created a vision document uh, for that corridor, um, and it also involved uh, the, the infrastructure, uh, generally like we see it today with Medical Center Parkway, Robert Rose Drive. Uh, those are the infrastructure things we see. What you don't see are the things that are underground, and so we worked with um, with uh, Darren and, and his team at Water and Sewer, and, and he, he may have even been on the private side when a lot of that work <laughs> I, was done. I, I did a lot of private uh, design work when I was with Wiser back then. And, and bringing that, those uh, other underground infrastructure elements, so water and sewer, uh, power, communications, to create uh, uh, you know, the, the infrastructure to support the vision that, that was presented in that, in that vision document. Well over 100 years ago, the main entrance into the downtown Murfreesboro Square would have been East Main. Uh, obviously, the, the local courthouse faces East Main even, but that's changed. And it looks like the new, I, I guess, main entrance into downtown Murfreesboro will be South Church Street as this area continues to develop. You know, it's an interesting evolution of, of the front door of Murfreesboro. And as you look at uh, at how things have progressed in those, uh, what I would say is the post-Civil War um, era of Murfreesboro, we were really, um, uh, I think, maybe uh, connected pretty strongly to the rail service that came through um, in the, the rail depot um, that, that's here, the warehouse district that, that would have abutted that. We still see some remnants of that in the Cannonsburg area and the historic bottoms area and, and flipping over and looking at some of the other parts of the downtown in, in uh, what is that, Cannon and uh, Overall Street. There's still some, some the old rail spurs that, that serve that area. Um, and, and Murfreesboro was not as accessible from surface routes, you know, from traditional roads, really I would say until post-World War II, uh, which is really when a lot of our nation, we really kind of got married to the automobile and to the roadways, and there was a, an extensive effort of road building throughout the country, including the construction of Broad Street uh, through the downtown area, which happened in the 1950s. And so Broad Street uh, shaped the, the character of downtown Murfreesboro for 
about 25 to 30 years in that 1950s to the 1970s and 80s. Uh, I-24 was really extended into this area in in the uh, in the 70s, and so we saw the transition of a state highway coming through your central business district to an interstate route that really in a lot of communities created uh, another opportunity and then we saw businesses kind of chase the traffic if you will uh, out to the interstate and and now we're we're um, there with medical center parkway old fort parkway new salem highway south church street all of those serving uh, sort of that interstate traffic and then we're looking at 840 as that same corridor um, I think we we neglected our downtown for some period in there, uh, but in the late 80s, our city uh, downtown started what we're seeing today, uh, and it's been a long process, but they really started with a downtown improvement plan in the late 80s. We reinvested in our uh, square, we reinvested in the infrastructure, uh, a lot of the decorative street lighting and infrastructure you see today was really created in, in the late 80s. Uh, City Hall was moved to its current location in 1992, creating the library and City Hall and Civic Plaza and parking garage. Uh, but we continue to invest in our downtown uh, because of its importance in our community and um, and serving as that uh, center of, of city and county government, but also as a, a center of our, our community for, for some other activities as well. I know we only have a couple minutes left because Rob Mitchell, property assessor of Rutherford County, is going to be on next. But uh, in closing, are there any new projects coming to Murphy's, bro? Any new developments that have been proposed and have passed that, uh, you know, folks have not heard about yet? You know, none, none come to mind. I, we uh, receive inquiries every day. Uh, I say every day, most most every day, most certainly every week about developments and, and, and projects. And some of those have some staying power and actually make it through the pro process. But we're constantly uh, managing those things. I think, um, you know, the couple things that I would mention um, um, from a city standpoint um, we have uh, 20. We, we broke ground this uh, past week on the transit center at New Salem Highway and Bridge Avenue. So that project was uh, perhaps about 12 months there. Um, Darren mentioned earlier uh, 316 Robert Rose Drive. The status of that, Darren, to relocate your water and sewer department. Right. We we took bit renovation bids. Uh, I think last month, and so those got approved. So we'll be. About a six six month process of getting that building renovated. It's the old Guarantee Trust building, three sixteen Robert Rose, and so we'll be moving over there uh, next summer. And then uh, twenty one forty uh, Thompson Lane uh, would be a joint uh, administration headquarters for our fire department and parks and rec department. We're expecting uh, to uh, cut the ribbon on that. Um, uh, after the first of the year and, and, and move those two administrative functions in there. Uh, a lot of things uh, working strongly with the city and, and of course you're aware of t Town Creek and some of the others. Don't want to steal any more of Rob's time than we have. <laughs> <laughs> Again with us this morning, Sam Huddleston and Darren Gore with the City of Murphy's Bro. Uh, thank you both for joining us. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. Next time we'll, we'll iron out where you guys have like four hours to be on the air. <laughs> we could probably fill it up. Well, I, I learn a lot every time I'm with Sam. 
<laughs> oh, good. Time right now, 8.53. Stay with us. More news, including Rob Mitchell, the property assessor of Rutherford County, coming your way next. WGNS is powered by Middle Tennessee Electric. MTE's downtown Murfreesboro office on North Walnut is closed and staff relocated to the new central office on New Salem Highway. Get assistance or make payments there or at the St. Andrews Drive location. Hi, this is Dan at Music World and Drummer's Den. You've bought your new guitar, your keyboard, or your drums. You don't know how to play it. Well, we have lessons on all stringed instruments, all keyboards, and one of the best drum instructors in the area. We are set up for all types of lessons. Music World and Drummer's Den. 2762 South Church Street. If you need music gear, Music World and Drummer's Den is where you need to be. South Church Street, across from Indian Hills Golf Course. This is Peter Demas inviting you to enjoy a meal with our family at Demas's Restaurant. With cold and flu season here, nothing helps my family more than having the Demas's baked chicken and rice soup. It was a soup that was created by my grandmother, and we not only sell it by the cup, but we also sell it by the quart, by the half gallon, and by the gallon. So stop by any time today and bring soup to your family that may be sick or a friend that's in sick, or just to enjoy it just because it tastes so good. Demas's Restaurant. With us right now, Rutherford County Assessor of Property, Rob Mitchell. Rob, how are you this morning? Doing great, doing great. Happy Halloween. Well, thank you. A lot of kids out there, or will be out there, starting at 3 o'clock, I believe, on the square. And uh, I I guess the property assessor's office, will they be stopping by there as well? Uh, We have candy in our office if if, if our staff hasn't eaten it all yet. (laughs) So what what's new in the world of uh, assessing property? Oh well, you know as as Sam's been talking about, we, of course we're growing like weeds. But uh, I I did hear something uh, that was that was stated on on the radio. I wanted to provide some clarity because bad information is worse than no information at all. And um, you know there were some questions about real estate investment trusts and how they're assessed and um, the. The state constitution is is pretty clear. Uh, Article 2, Section 28 says that residential property is to be assessed at 25% of its of its value, provided that residential property containing two or more rental units is hereby defined as industrial commercial property. So the constitution is pretty clear on how we're supposed to assess it. And uh, for those listening... What you're referring to, the county mayor was on the air recently, and he said that uh, those big corporations who come into cities like like Murfreesboro and buy, you know, 20, 30, 100 homes at a time, and then they start leasing those homes out, they're not charged the commercial rate on the property tax as a apartment complex would be. No, they're, they're not. But it's you, you can't just target one particular owner. It would it would be like me saying, uh Scott, you own uh, 15 rental properties. I'm going to assess you at a commercial rate. And you say, well, that's how, you know, I'm, I'm making ends meet. That's my retirement. Why are, you, why are you going to do this? You've changed things on me. The, the Constitution says it's a single-family residence with one person renting in it. The dwelling is supposed to be assessed at 25%. Why are you picking on me? And you'd win. Uh, there's a court case out of Anderson County where uh, – the the assessor was kind of pushed into picking up properties at 40 percent it was challenged in court the assessor lost and the county ended up having to pay back the uh 
the taxes with interest and pay for the appellant's court costs and attorney fees. And that's not a prudent thing to do. It's it's kind of a knee-jerk reaction. And, and there are a lot of people here in Murfreesboro and Rutherford County who they own, you know, five, six, seven houses that they rent out. And, right. and part of the goal for a lot of those folks, their goal is to hold on to them until their retirement. And then they sure. probably plan to sell them at that point and not have the headache of uh, that's a bit, managing a bit property. Of landlord. That's right. Well, and, and two, you know, the the statement was that there's 10 percent uh actually it's it's more like 5.9 percent uh ownership in REITs in Rutherford County and and the difference in what it would mean on our tax rate it it, in collected taxes and county taxes it would be about two percent of the total tax bill total tax collections is the only difference if it was at 40 percent if you assess it at forty percent, it would only account for two percent. So it's it's not as large an amount. It's more of an esoteric. Well, gee, that's just not right. No, it's it's unfortunate, but it's a legal business that has found a way to maximize their profits. Um, it's unfortunate. I hate it. I've been talking about it since twenty twenty one, and I've actually been interviewed by the washington post about it and i think you guys have carried stories yeah. on it multiple times uh that it that it's an issue so it's not anything that's that's new or we, we didn't know about we've been trying to get legislation passed that would address this to give the assessors some some guidance on how to properly do it the the hard part is getting past article 2 section 28 of the tennessee constitution so it'd probably take a constitutional amendment to change. Now, in some of these organizations that own, you know, let's say a hundred different single-family homes that they rent out in places like Murfreesboro, I guess one of the biggest fears is for property owners in those neighborhoods where there are so many homes that turned into real property. The biggest fear is that neighborhood just kind of going downhill as far as property values are concerned, because those who rent places. They're not concerned with beautifying their landscaping. They're not concerned with making sure all the shutters are painted properly and are hanging properly. No. So it, it's just kind of a, a different horse altogether you're looking at. It, it is. Uh, and that's something that, that could probably be addressed through zoning. But that would be a local zoning thing saying that, you, you know, you're not going to. And Sam, you may. Sam Huddleston's right here. Let's change that. it all right. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it might be something with zoning that they could bring up and say, well, we're not going to do it with zoning. We're, we're going to restrict that. But, I mean, it's, it's a complex issue. Some color to that from the city standpoint. Um, our, um, our, our zoning ordinance um, really talks about land uses similar to, to what you said uh, in, in your opening remarks uh, about. Uh, uh, two rental units or more, uh, and we have very similar language in our zoning ordinance. It says single family is really intended for one family only. Uh, it doesn't talk about ownership. It only talks about use. Mm -hmm. um, and then where our zoning ordinance is really independent of ownership, uh, and the state has said to communities, you really can't regulate ownership. Um so really, we look at how the property is used, and I think uh, I think that's consistent with with what the property assessor's office does as yeah. well. Uh, and and you know, it, it's not that anybody's out here trying to give anybody a f uh, beneficial treatment or preferential treatment. The state law pretty much governs 
how we're supposed to do things. And if the county or the city were to look at ownership and who's living there, you would quickly get into the thick of thin things because you'd find out that, well, my grandmother lives here and I bought her this house. I'm going to sell it years later. My son lives in this house. I mean, it would be very unfair very fast. Yeah, it, it does. It, and uh, Well, I thought one of the, you know, one of the parts of the conversation that we haven't heard is that if we, if the property assessor uh, determines that that you uh, apply that higher tax rate to those REITs, that's getting passed on to the people that live there. Exactly. And so it's really going to come off of the off of the backs of the of the renters who live in there for those property values to go up and i'm i'm not on one side or the other i'm only really looking at it from from the real impacts um uh the, the people who own land and lease it out they recover their cost in those rental fees they they do uh, you know affordable housing is an issue so if you make it more expensive for a landlord to rent out they're going to pass it on to the renter which is going to make the property less affordable to rent so now you've exacerbated a problem that you already realize is existing in the community and where are you there and of course landlords have expenses which is something that tenants fail to realize a lot of times (laughs) but most of the landlords out there they have a mortgage on whatever house it is they're renting out to who knows who but they also have property taxes and insurance and all the upkeep as well that's right that's right there's it's more expensive to uh to rent a house than people think of a lot of times it's 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 no cakewalk and i wouldn't want to do it (laughs) now now, again going back to what you initially started uh, with and that is the number of REITs that take up the property in Rutherford County, uh-huh. where what percentage does that stand at? Because I know Rutherford County Mayor Joe Carr was on the air just last week, and he talked about how the number of REIT homes or homes owned by big corporations that are you know for profit was 10%. He, he suggested that 10% of all the homes in Rutherford County are owned by these huge corporations. We have 6,050 real estate owned that's 5.9 percent of the total single family residential dwellings so i'm not sure where he got his numbers from um we, we weren't contacted my office wasn't contacted about it so i'm, I'm not sure where he got it from I, I couldn't tell you and if you go to the assessor of properties website you can really only search homes or, or commercial lots whatever it is one by one you couldn't just type in you know i, I guess all commercial owned property or all property owned by investment firms that you just couldn't do that no no we uh we do have a function on a new beta website that we're bringing out that allows you to search and you could put in a name and it would pull up all the owners names on it but you have to have the specific name you have to know what you're looking for And again, with us this morning, Rutherford County Assessor of Property, Rob Mitchell. And once more, he said that 5.9% of the homes in Rutherford County are owned by these investment-type firms. Right. So much smaller number, almost half of what the county mayor suggested last week. Yeah. Uh, A much larger number are owned by individuals. 8,667 are owned by individual local homeowners whose ownership of the properties is supplementing their retirement so we have interesting we have eight thousand six hundred local owners who would be directly impacted financially by any change 
Again, Rob Mitchell with us, assessor of property, and then also with us this morning, Sam Huddleston, assistant city manager for the city of Murfreesboro. Well, thank you all for joining us. Uh, Thanks for having me, Scott. That time right now, 9.06, and the roundtable comes your way next, right here on WGNS, your good neighbor station since 1947.